Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Still not all the way back with my uh, bronchitis, but the infection's gone and the uh, lungs are still a little bit weak, but appreciate all your prayers. It's, uh, Lisa gets it every year, and I never quite understood what bronchitis was like, so I'm a little more empathetic now than I used to be. But we've got a lot to cover today. Uh, it's going to be a bit of a technical day, um, so I'd like to jump right into this study. As Pastor Adrian said, we're going to be talking about the subject of Christmas. So I'd like you to turn into your Bibles to the passage that talks about Christmas and God's directions on how he expects us to keep it. So if you could flip over to... Okay, good. There's. Let me know when you're there so we can start. What's curious, among many, 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 many interesting facts, and obviously for the most part we're preaching to the choir here, is that despite this festival being the centerpiece of modern Christianity, there's nothing found anywhere in Scripture authorizing its celebration. In fact, the historical record tells us, and there are a myriad of facts, I just took a few, that the first use of the term Christmas was recorded in Old English, and only in the year 1038, it was the word uh, Christmas in Old English. So for a centerpiece of Christianity that revolves around the birth of our Savior 2,000 years ago, the very word itself did not come into play until a thousand years after his death. <clears throat> it wasn't until AD th- approximately AD 350 that Pope Julius I, the Bishop of Rome, proclaimed December 25th as the official celebration date for the birth of Christ. And again, this coincides with published works of other Latin writers like Momsen, who wrote about the birth of the unconquered son. Son, S-U-N. You'll recall from those of you who've been here for the past studies for the last eight months, the name Origen of Alexandria. One, again, one of these Greek philosophers that had a huge impact on, uh, on modern Christianity with the Roman Catholic Church and, and other methods of Christianity. Uh, we've come across him before in our studies, and we've seen the influence that he's had, uh, the influence of Greek philosophy on modern Christianity. It wasn't until as late as 245 A.D., so 245 A.D., over 200 years after the death of Christ, that he even argued against the instituting of a celebration honoring the birth of Christ. So Origen, of all people, actually argued against the celebration of the birth of Christ. He was battling some of the other uh, Catholic fathers in that regard. So what I'd like to do today is to look into the pages of Scripture as well as the annals of history and see how this festival has become the flagship celebration of modern Christianity. What is at the root of this festival that now honors the birth of the Messiah? When was he born? If he was born at a different time, should we, should we honor his birth? If, if not Christmas, should we honor it at another time? And what can we learn from the account of his birth, the account that is biblical, So that, so, and what can we learn from that account? So let's first look 
at the history of Christmas. And let's do that first by turning to the pages of our Bible. Let's go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Because at the... While we all, obviously, those present here, agreed that it's not in Scripture because no one was able to turn to a Scripture when I asked you to turn to the the Scriptures that talk about Christmas. Christ's birth is biblical. It is an actual recorded fact. We can't be afraid of the account just because others have stolen it in the name of, of false religion. We cannot be afraid of the account of his birth. So let's turn to Luke chapter 2 and note, note a couple of things as we look at the history of this festival called Christmas. Luke chapter 2, Luke presents one of the more detailed accounts of his birth. And let's pick it up in verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So the shepherds, as we see, Back in verse 8, we're out in the fields watching over their flocks during the nighttime. Now, those of you who are familiar with Pastor Adrian this week, he was outside this week at night, one night, and he slept outside in a a fundraiser for Covenant House. And I don't think there were any flocks possible out out, uh, this week. And this is only November. This is not December. If we look at the fact that the flocks were outside, the shepherds were still in agricultural mode. The end of December in Israel is the cold and rainy season. Not often snow, but definitely cold and definitely rainy, much like what we see outside here today. Once the Feast of Tabernacles came to an end, which we know is at the end of September, beginning of October, farmers returned home and began their preparations for winter. This included bringing their flocks into their winter quarters, And this was completed in November. And by December, there were no flocks to be found in any of the fields. It was was simply, you didn't find it. It was was unhealthy for the flocks. There was no no, uh, advantage to it. There's no added value to having flocks outside in the rainy season. They would get sick, and and they simply, it just wasn't done. So clearly here, this is not December. We're looking April through September, October, if in fact the flocks were outside. Let's go back to another point. One chapter before, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. We're cutting into the context here where Gabriel, the angel of God, is announcing to Mary that she will be the mother of of Jesus. Verse 34 tells us, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, 
that holy one who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her, who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. So as we set the timing here, we see that John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus Christ. Elizabeth's pregnancy occurred six months before the beginning of Mary's pregnancy. Now when we go through these, there's all these little details we tend to read over, but when we break it down, these become important details. Let's go back to verse 5, same chapter. And look at the, the now the, the same story, but for John the Baptist, the announcing of, of Elizabeth's conception of John. Verse 5. Now there were in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was, while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people uh, was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But when the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord, their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias has said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. So they, the conception still hadn't taken place, but he would be mute until said time. And when people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple, when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. And so it was, as soon as, as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months. Then the Lord has said, Then the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So Zechariah completed his temple service, and then his wife became uh, conceived with John the Baptist. Let's go back to, and the, the whole key to this is understanding the division of Abijah and this whole temple service thing that is mentioned here. So let's go back to First Chronicles chapter 24. When King David set up this temple service with the priesthood, this becomes key in understanding the timing of the birth of Christ. Now again, we talked about the, this being a little bit technical, but let's just systematically go through here 
and see why some of these details in the, in the account in, in Luke become important in understanding the timing of the birth of Christ. Chapter 24 of 1 Chronicles says, Now these are the divisions of the son of Aaron. The sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Now for just for time's sake, verse 3 says, Then David with Zadok of the sons of Eleazar and Ahimelech and the sons of Ithamar divided them according to the schedule of their service. There were more leaders found among the sons of Eleazar than the sons of Ithamar, and thus they were divided. Among the sons of Eleazar were 16 heads of their father's houses and eight heads of the father's houses among the sons of Ithamar. And they were divided by lot, one group, after, one group as another, for there were officials of the sanctuary and officials of the house of God for the sons of Eleazar and the sons of Ithamar. So to break some of this down, there were 24 divisions of, of priests, of priests, family of priests. And they served one week every six months in the temple. And then all divisions served during the holy day seasons. So there were about four weeks that all divisions served, and then each of them served every six months for one week out of, or two weeks out of the year, one-week segments. When we go down here to verse 7, the first lot fell to Jehoiarib, the second to Jedidiah, the third to Harim, the fourth to Seorim, the fifth to Melchijah, the sixth to Mijamin, the seventh to Hakaz, the eighth to Abijah. So Zacharias, who was from the family of Abijah then, who was in that line of the service, fell in the eighth course. As you take it from the first, from the start of the of the civil year, month one, week one, this would bring Abijah's time, uh, service to approximately the week before Pentecost. So Zacharias was in serving in the temple for a week before Pentecost, and then they all served the week of Pentecost, and then from there he w- he went back home to to his wife which would bring us to about the beginning of June. Scriptures say that he then received this voice back because the conception took place and that miracle that the miracle was, was founded there. So the, this, the conception took place soon after he returned home, sometime around the beginning of June. So sometime in the month of June would have been the conception based on this course of Abijah being the, the eighth course, which would have placed the birth of John nine months later, sometime around March or April. Doubling back on the fact that Christ, Christ's birth took place six months later, this would place Christ's birth sometime around September to October. And this is often the, and this is when the shepherds still had their flocks outside. Now, understanding that they served twice a year, six months apart, based on that scripture alone, the scripture doesn't actually define which course he was serving, whether it was his, his May, May course, or whether it could have been his November course. It doesn't specifically say out of that specific uh, set of scriptures. So based on that text alone, John could have been born in the fall and Christ in the spring. I personally believe, this is my personal opinion, that Christ was born in the fall for a number of, uh, number of reasons. That's my personal opinion. But what is crystal clear is that a winter birth is completely out of the question depending on which course of the, the first course of Abijah or the second course of Abijah. But a winter birth is absolutely and completely out of the question. It's more than likely a fall birth, but it does, it does make, it does, based on that scripture alone, it could have been a spring birth, but my personal belief, based on other texts, which we won't go into today, is that it was a fall birth. 
but a winter birth is completely out of the question, simply based on this inclusion of the course of Abijah in the account here in Luke. So those are two facts from the actual birth of Christ account that clearly show it is impossible for Christ to have been, been born in the winter. The shepherds simply were never outside with their flocks during that time of year. It wasn't even close. They were, had long been inside for a good couple of months in their winter quarters. And the fact that when uh, Mary would have conceived Christ six months after the conception of John the Baptist, in line with this course of Abijah when Zacharias would have been serving in the temple, completely shows that there is no way Christ could have been born in the winter months. So where does this December 25th celebration come from? Well, this mother and child that the, the modern Christianity has in the reverence of Mary, the queen, the queen of heaven, and her son, Jesus, have been this, had formed this mother and child motif, have formed the centerpiece of many, many religions and cultures, all in, far preceding the actual birth of Jesus Christ. You go back to Babylon, and we have the story of Inanna, who was the queen of heaven. In Egypt, we have Isis and her son Horus. And again, we, throughout all of these studies, we've shown how Greek influence, Babylonian influence, all of these influences of these other cultures have stolen what is actual truth and, and, and confused the stories for God's people. We have Mesopotamia. Again, long before the birth of Christ, you've heard of Ishtar, from whom Easter was, uh, is connected, and Tammuz, her child. And, and all the way back, let's go to Genesis chapter 10, the mother and son motif that is at the heart of the Christmas story. Genesis chapter 10. goes all the way back to Nimrod. Verse 8 of Genesis chapter 10. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalmei in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the principal city. And as we know from the historical context, Nimrod was a great warrior. He developed this, was one of the first developers of, the, of a big empire. And the historical record indicates the celebration of the birth of Nimrod to be in line with December 25th. He married his mother, Semiramis, as part of the historical context. And the, the stories on Nimrod de- degrade from there to, to the point that we won't talk about them here. But, he, but it was it, the, the stories of Nimrod delve all the way back to the, that his birth, they celebrated his birth on December 25th, the rebirth of the sun. We know that December 25th falls just a few days after the winter solstice, which were, that is the shortest day of the year. And festivals have been in place re- celebrating the winter solstice 
far back into all of these cultures that we talked about in Babylon, in Egypt, in Mesopotamia. These winter solstice celebrations have far preceded the birth of Christ. In fact, the major one, and we talked about it a few weeks ago downstairs, was the celebration called Saturnalia. And this was an ancient Roman festival honoring Saturn, the Roman god of agriculture. And this took place on December 25th was the highlighted portion, but it, was, it covered a few days. There were sacrifices, there were banquets, there was gift giving, there were parties, there were carnivals, there was gambling. In fact, there was a time for the reversal of the role of slaves and masters. And slaves were actually treated well, and it included gift giving. But what was really intended as a festival of light, because that was, that was what the official celebration was, a festival of the rebirth of light. This, the day goes to the shortest part of the year, and now we celebrate because now the days are getting longer. What was really an official celebration of the festival of light, meant to honor the rebirth of the sun, turned into, as is typical of humanity, into a reason to party, to loosen our inhibitions, and to partake in whatever we desire. The second and third centuries saw an increasing influence of Greek culture into this Roman culture. After the, Car- the, wars of the Carthage Wars, the Greeks got some influence into this, this Roman culture, and it started to degrade a little further. And then over the course of the third and the fourth centuries, as the Roman Empire and the church came together to sort of synthesize Saturnalia with this birth of Christ celebration that we talked about that the Pope in 350 started uh, making official the birth of Christ, many of the traditions of Saturnalia became adopted into the celebration of the birth of Christ. Much like we've seen for the previous eight studies, where a lot of the Greek culture and the cultures around just became sort of sucked up into the, the teachings of Christianity, from heaven and hell, uh, once saved, always saved, and all those other, their, one of all those other uh, uh, doctrines that we've been discussing for the last eight months. So for time's sake, my purpose here is not to go into an extensive diatribe on Saturnalia and all of these celebrations, but just to show that a, a, a cursory research on some of these, these celebrations that preceded the birth of Christ show that the historical record is very clear. Christ could not have been born in the winter months. He simply couldn't have been. There were many other winter solstice celebrations honoring other gods like Nimrod and Saturn long before and long after the birth of Jesus. And the Roman church was instrumental in synthesizing these cultural festivals into the liturgy for obvious reasons. We can get the focus off the word of God and put it onto the the feel-good nature of some of these rituals. So what does the word of God actually say? What does the word of God actually say? Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah here is writing to God's people as they were in the throes of being subject first to the Egyptians and then to the Babylonians. And here, God, through Jeremiah, says, let's pick it up in verse 2, Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the ways of the Gentiles, 
Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them, for their customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen and with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like you. But they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Silver is beaten into plates. It is brought up from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. The work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the metalsmith, blue and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of the skillful men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth will tremble, and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Now, obviously, this is not about Christmas per se, because Christmas did not become official until 350. But from the historical record of all of the different types of winter, winter solstice celebrations, like Saturnalia, which were present, and this, of course, is at the, the, near the height of the, the Babylonian Empire, they adopted some of these into the Christmas scene. What Was this Christmas? Clearly not, because Christmas wasn't existed this time. But this clearly God was saying you cannot take some of these, the, you cannot look to other religions and adopt their rituals. You must follow, as he says in verse 10, the Lord is the true God and he is the living God and the everlasting king. Do not look to the ways of the Gentiles for your ways of worship. Do not learn the ways of non-covenant people. Our God is the true God. His ways are true ways. What else does God tell us? Let's go back and let's look at a few scriptures here about what God tells us and how he expects us to worship him. Exodus 23. Exodus 23. Who are we to look to in our worship? Keeping in mind that the celebration of Christmas looked to these celebrations of all these other cultures and adopted these, these rituals of Saturnalia, these rituals from, from the celebrations of Nimrod, these rituals in Mesopotamia, these rituals in Egypt, and sort of amalgamated them and synthesized them eventually into this Christmas celebration that came to honor our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Exodus 23, verse 23. Exodus 23, verse 23. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. And you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. God said he was going to send Israel into these foreign lands, but they were not to become synthesized into their culture. They were to completely eradicate those cultures and follow only God's culture. They were not to simply, they were not just to, not to serve their gods. They weren't even to follow their actions. So worship, but also not following their actions. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll see as we go through the pages of Scripture that this was one of God's key talking points because he kept coming back to it and kept covering it throughout the history of mankind. Because as he places his people as the, the light of the earth, this city on a hill, that we, we, are, we are to be the market leaders. We are to be the ones that lead people to God. What we've seen over the course of history, and Christmas is a perfect example, is, is God's way has been corrupted, and we have synthesized the, the worldly rituals into a false celebration of our God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Again, something that has plagued mankind from the beginning of time. When we feel blessed, when we are well, we all of a sudden think that it's our doing. And God is warning us against forgetting who is the supplier of these blessings. Verse 13, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are, who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. As he has placed his people amongst in the world and amongst as this, this light on a hill, there are, there are several cultures that will affect us. We have seen it from the beginning of time clear through to today. God's instructions are, do not be changed by cultures around you. Do not be changed by them. You stay pure, you follow me, and you affect their cultures. You do not become synthesized by their cultures. Deuteronomy 12, let's go forward a few pages. Verse 1. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord of your God, the Lord God of your fathers, is giving to you to possess. Deuteronomy 12, verse 1. All the days that you live on the earth, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess, which you shall dispossess, serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars. Burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down their carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. We do not worship God the way we feel, the way anybody else feels. God has prescribed for us the way in which he should be worshipped, and it is not through the rituals of mankind. Verse 8, you shall not do at all, you shall not at all do as we are doing here today every man doing what is ever, whatever is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have come, not come to the rest and inheritance which the Lord your God has given you. And then finishing up in verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them. 
after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? I will also do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. It seems pretty clear. It seems pretty easy. But we have a history of 6,000 years of mankind simply not listening to that, those instructions of mankind doing what was right in his own eyes, of mankind inquiring after other gods. Well, let's, if we do it in honor of God, what's the harm? The harm is God says not to do it. God says he has a way that he expects to be worshipped. Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25. Verse 4, Jeremiah 25. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them. But you have not listened, nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Repent now, everyone, of his evil way and his evil doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. We can see God's concern for man and his people and how they continue to look after other gods instead of simply following his instructions that he has clearly laid out for us. So that's what the Bible says about following other religions. What does the Bible teach about actual worship? And how does that play into the Christmas debate? Let's go to Leviticus 23 first. Leviticus 23. When we looked initially and said to turn to the scriptures that talk about when and how and how to specifically keep Christmas, we clearly couldn't find any. In fact, the birth of Christ, we found out, we can pin it down, we can narrow it down and say it definitely wasn't in the winter. It looks like it was in the fall. But we have no date. We have no date at all. We know when he died. We have no date of his birth. Let's look. When we look here in Leviticus 23, we see the festivals that God expects us to keep. The seventh-day Sabbath. Passover is the 14th of the first month. The festival of unbread, the 15th day of the first month through the 21st day of the first month. From the Sabbath in between, you count seven full weeks, and you come to the 50th day and you celebrate Pentecost. The Feast of Trumpets is the first day of the seventh month. The Feast of Atonement is the 10th day of the seventh month. The Feast of Tabernacles is from day 15 to 21 of the seventh month. And the last great day is the 22nd day of the seventh month. Very clear. 
there's no argument. It's very precise. If you follow the Hebraic calendar, the calendar that God inspired, you know exactly when to keep those festivals, including the death of Christ. When do we keep his birth? If this was so important, if this is the centerpiece of Christianity, it would stand to reason he would tell us when. He told us every other thing he expects us to keep, very specific as to when, very specific as to how. There's nothing. There's nothing in here that tells us even when Christmas should be from the pages of Scripture. Every other festival in Leviticus 23 tells us it is very specific, very time-sensitive. There are even deviations in Scripture. Numbers chapter 9. Special deviations do occur, which we must acknowledge. Numbers chapter 9. Verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If any one of you or your posterity is unclean because of a corpse or is far away on a journey, he may still keep the Lord's Passover. On the fourteenth day of the second month at twilight, they may keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break one of its bones. According to all the ordinances of the Passover, they shall keep it. But the man who is clean and is not on a journey and ceases to keep the Passover, that same person shall be cut off from among his people because he did not bring the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. God understood that there were some exceptions and some times when you couldn't keep the Passover. But it was so important that he allowed for a provision to keep it a month later. But not whenever you wanted, not whenever it was convenient. The 14th day exactly one month later and follow all of the provisions of the Passover and you can keep it. That wasn't in Leviticus 23. That's a deviation. But it allows, it's a deviation that allows for the human condition because the Passover is so important to God. Second Chronicles chapter 30. This is the story of Hezekiah reinstituting the system of worship. And they weren't quite ready. Verse 1, 2 Chronicles 30. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. But the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month, for they could not keep it at the regular time because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. And the matter pleased the king and all the assembly, so they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. God blessed Hezekiah because he was trying to reintroduce a system of worship. The people were a little slow in the uptake. There was... was, uh, things that they couldn't just get ready for. The, the priests didn't get themselves ready in time. Uh, the people couldn't get down to Jerusalem. This was still new to some of them. So God allowed them to keep it a month later. Flip over to verse 21. It was such a success. So the children of Israel, who were present at the Jerusalem, kept the Feast of Lord of Bread seven days with great gladness. They had re- been reintroduced to God's way here. 
And the Levites and the, and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord accompanied by loud instruments. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. And they kept it another seven days with gladness. Verse 24, Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place to heaven. So they kept a second Feast of Unleavened Bread, and God heard it and blessed it. But the timing was specific. When they kept the second Passover, it was a month later. When they kept that one time, the second Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was the very next week. It was very specific. It was connected to the, the, the original keeping, and it was in prescribed manner of how God expected to worship. So they did not deviate from the expected worship of God. They didn't add another festival. They didn't honor another deity. They didn't add to God's holy writ. They simply extended by special circumstances what God had already instituted. So the key question now as we come down the last little bit here. What should we keep in honor of Christ? What about his birth? We see that his birth could not have been in the winter, that the celebration of Christmas is so connected to foreign cultures and foreign religions, extending so far back into several degraded ceremonies and degraded festivals. But the birth of Christ is in Scripture. What can we learn from the birth of Christ? What should we celebrate? The key question is to ask ourselves is this. What was the purpose of Christ coming to earth in the first place? Why, why was he born? Why was he born? Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Christ was born for a very specific purpose. Verse 8, and cutting into the context, but for the purposes here of extracting a simple, single fact that we're very familiar with. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Revelation 13, verse 8. Whose names have not been written in the book of the life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Christ was born on this earth because long eons before that, he and his father had a plan to build a family. And that involved him coming down to this earth as a human being and dying for our sins. He was born so that he could die. And understanding that is key to understanding what we are to worship and how we are to worship Christ. The whole reason for him coming down here from the very beginning is so that he could die. His birth served a purpose that was fulfilled in his death. Luke 22. Luke 22. 
verse 19. This is the story of the New Testament Passover, the Lord's Supper. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You want to commemorate something? Commemorate my death. Remember my death. And when was that? Passover. Fourteenth day of the first month. Back in Exodus, all the way through into the Gospels. Very clear. You want to commemorate something? You want to remember my time on this earth? Remember my death. Because that's why I came. John 13. That does not mean that Christ's time here on this earth is not something we can remember. John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. The second purpose of his life, he came to show us the way to live came to show us the way to live, that it could be done, that there is a better way to live, that we don't have to follow the examples of our forefathers. We don't have to follow the example of the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Mesopotamians. There is a good way to live, and we follow his example while he was here on this earth. Thirdly, and equally important, his birth and his life fulfill prophecy. It verifies the Old Testament and it solidifies our faith. Look at the number of Old Testament prophecies specifically about his birth and how they were fulfilled. The story of his birth tells us that God's plan has been in existence from the beginning of time, from the foundation of the world. We read that in Revelation. We see how it's covered in the Old Testament. And when all of these little facts all come down and are spot on when we see in the account of Matthew and the account of Luke. And all these prophecies, all these little facts that were predicted come true. The mathematics are astounding. It, it, it is impossible or, or next near to impossible without the precision of God behind it. Jesus will come from the line of Abraham. That's, we're told that in Genesis. Jesus' mother will be a virgin. Isaiah tells us that. Jesus will be a descendant of Isaac and Jacob. Jesus will be born in the town of Bethlehem. We find that in Micah. Jesus will be called out of Egypt. We see that in Hosea. Jesus will be a member of the tribe of Judah. Jesus will enter the temple. Jesus will be from the lineage of King David. Jesus' birth will be accompanied by great suffering and sorrow. Jesus will live a perfect life, die by crucifixion, be resurrected from death, will ascend into heaven, and will sit at the right hand of God. These are just ten of the massive amounts of prophecies that that are clear in the Old Testament that all came true in the life of Christ, from his birth through to his death. His life here was great. We are here because he lived. 
But we are here because he died, and he lives again. There is no record in there for to celebrate his life on this earth. His life, his birth, was a means to an end. His birth, he wasn't. He had eternity. He gave that up and was born of Mary, so that he could show us the way, so that prophecy could be fulfilled and that we might have our sins forgiven through his death. His birth took him away from his father. His birth took away his glory because he asked for it to be re-given to him. His birth, he gave everything up. It was his death that he got us back. It was by his death that we live. It was by his resurrection that we have our hope. His birth, we're not told to celebrate it. We don't know when it is. It is connected to so much evil for so many centuries beforehand. The story of the birth of Christ is an amazing one. We should not be afraid of it just because it was commandeered by other religions. What we need to fear is our God, our Savior, and how we worship them. Is our system of worship, is what we do here, is what we do in our daily lives in line with the commands of God as found in the pages of Scripture? Embrace the entire story of Christ's life here on this earth. It is a beautiful story. It is filled with fulfilled prophecy, life lessons to bring us closer to God, and instructions on how we need to conduct ourselves in this life. But we need to embrace God's way. Know the history of the holidays made to look like they honor our God when they so clearly don't. And stay tuned in the sermon later on this afternoon. We will revisit other holidays, their histories, and how this should affect our behavior as covenant people. Any, at this time, we typically take questions, open the floor for Thoughts relative to the study? Thanks for that. Is that all right now? Yeah. Um, I was just taking notes when you were talking about the different courses of the priests. And then I missed why you said that Christ could have been born in the spring because of the way it falls out. Is he born well, in the fall? Well, based on, uh, I, I wanted to acknowledge that based on the scripture in Luke that talked about the course of Abijah, that there were two courses. They did they served twice a year. So theoretically, based on just that scripture, it could have been six months in reverse. But there are other things that I believe that lend to credence that he was born in the fall. But just based on that scripture alone, on the course of Abba, they serve twice a year, uh, once in the first six months and once in the last six months. Uh, they serve two, two, two single weekly sessions. So just from that, that was, my, that was my acknowledgement that theoretically from that scripture, John could have been born in the fall and Christ in the spring, but I personally don't believe that. So is there anything else that we could point to to say that it was the first course rather than the second course? I believe he's born in the fall, in my personal opinion, based on uh, uh, the Feast of Trumpets being the, the, the return of Jesus Christ. I personally believe, my opinion only, 
that he uh, was likely born around the Feast of Trumpets. It could have been the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, we don't really have to have that, have that here, but all of what the fall festivals mean really to me indicate that he was likely but, born in the fall. But I, I personally didn't find any. If there's anything in there, okay. I, I didn't see anything technical in there that could point to the, to the fall other than... Other but than either that. way, it's clearly not December. It's not December. That's, yeah. If any, and if there's any, anything anyone else has seen that I missed that definitely points to a fall or spring, I'm certainly open to, to that. Um, actually, um, I think in the scripture there are some things we can look at that would help us um, to see that it really wasn't in the spring when he was born. And um, some things we're told is that there was a census that took place. That's one thing. And so that would have required um, traveling during the last part of the winter months, which sometimes can be very treacherous because, um, you know, the weather can shift so quickly one way or another. And that would have required um, Joseph and Mary to, to travel sooner. And the other thing that um, is alluded to in Scripture, or even specifically said, is the the kings of the east that traveled, they followed the star, and that Herod determined by the times, you know how old uh, Christ would have been. So they had started out earlier, which meant they would have traveled through the winter months. And I don't believe that anybody would have set out on that kind of a trip for that. All right, thanks. Just thoughts, Dan. Yeah, that's appreciate that. Uh, just one thing uh, doesn't like me. Uh, if he was born on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, like eight days later, he would have been circumcised, and that would have been the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm just wondering if that's a timeline you considered for his birth. It certainly, it certainly matches. Uh, it certainly falls in line with the fall. Yeah. Um, and it, but for whatever reason, Scripture doesn't say. So um, it's certainly uh, uh, a good discussion point, and, and uh, I can see validity to it. Um, but again, uh, Scripture doesn't point to when he was born, and I think the, there's a reason why Scripture doesn't point to the reason to when he was born. Um, um, but there's certainly validity to, to that. Yeah. It's uh, certainly a possibility. Right, and uh, the Saturnalia uh, thing and, and all the, the paganness that's in Christianity today, uh, when it was woven into and blended into the church, it wasn't the apostolic church it was blended into. I don't think it was the uh, apostate church of the oh, yeah, Roman Catholic absolutely. church. So the, the original apostolic church uh, must have been underground by then uh, and not... Uh, corrupted by that, I would say. I would agree with him with that. Yeah, we, there's no historical record of it, but the uh, Bible does say the gates of hell will never prevail against uh, the church. There's always a remnant. Uh, so it's at some course there was some flock that was protected and stayed true. But yeah, for sure it was the Roman Catholic Church that that, that synthesized it into their belief system, since they were the um, they were the mother church, for lack of a better word, at the yeah. time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else? Thank you, Pastor Murray. 
I think that uh, the birth of Christ was celebrated for the very first time on the day he was born with scriptures such as uh, in Isaiah when it says, unto us the son is born, unto us the son is given. And in that verse it just seems there's just real rejoicing there that he's here and, and the prophecies are fulfilled in his birth and, and I just think the hosts of heaven and everyone just rejoiced on that day through those verses. Why do you think it wasn't celebrated after that? Um, because after the birth, then it's all concentrating on, on the death, which is all his life was going to culminate, all the scripture saying. But I think the birth was just major in heaven. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, and celebrated there. The, the, the wise men came to find him, and yes. there was, um, but for whatever reason, Scripture doesn't tell us to continue to celebrate it. It was certainly a fulfilled prophecy, for sure. Yeah, I would agree with that. Anything else? We want to turn it back over to... you want to comment on the practical side of Christians during this period. So for our kids in school, for those of us at work, how we conduct ourselves. Sure. Uh, part of that's going to come in the, the, the second message. But um, um, yeah, maybe kind of leave it till, yeah. Okay. For sure. That's part of the, that's part of the, this, the second message. Um, This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.